Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, July 10th, 2020, 2020, 2022. <laughs> My name is Melanie C., a recovered compulsive overeater living in Canby, Oregon. The share ID numbers for Friday, July 8th, 2022, are the following. The 7 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study Meeting is 19154. That's 19,154. And 19155, 19,155 for the 10 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study Meeting. Today, A Vision for You presents Quit Jaywalking, Step 1, and Surrender. The title of today's presentation comes right out of the third chapter of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, more about alcoholism, and aims specifically at outlining the error of the addict's thinking mind and of all the examples describing this horror and insane twisted of, twist of the mind, the Jaywalker story has been chosen to move us into step one and total surrender, which equals acceptance, solution, treatment, and freedom. Let's take a minute to define jaywalking. It's the act of crossing a street in an illegal, careless, or unsafe manner with no regard for advancing traffic. The jaywalker is seeking advancing traffic to play chicken with. What an odd thing the average person might think on purpose. Do yourself a favor and read the story of the jaywalker in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. You'll find it on page 37 and 38, even if you've read it before, because in doing so, you'll discover the illustration of pure insanity as we compulsive overeaters view and behave the life that comes our way, the way we think as compulsive overeaters or addicts, I suppose, the way our brains behave who in their right mind would get a thrill out of walking in front of moving vehicles? Well, a real compulsive odor, overeater, a real, a real addict. The jaywalker story gives a, a realistic depiction of what addictive behaviors entail. Sure, the description of the jaywalker may seem silly. However, if you are an addict of the hopeless variety, you can relate to the story's incredibly apt metaphor. Chasing down an effect and powerless to stop in face of every good and decent reason not to. The jaywalker features a guy who, no matter how hard he tries, cannot stop jaywalking, although he would like nothing more than to stop. His obsession with jaywalking gets him into trouble repeatedly. He physically hurts himself multiple times, harms meaningful relationships, endures ridicule, humiliation, and turns a blind eye to every real problem in hopes of some instant gratification that never comes or evaporates in a moment, sending him into the street again. So what can you expect to glean from the jaywalker story? That we cannot stop ourselves no matter how hard we try. The relentless obsession of the vicious cycle over and over and over again unless we can concede to our innermost self that we are a compulsive overeater, unless we can see that our thinking is not reliable, unless we can see that we need an entire arrangement in our deportment, unless we surrender to our powerlessness, we are sunk. What the heck are we thinking? That would be an interesting retitle of this particular chapter, 
rather than more about alcoholism, what in the world are they thinking? It is, a very, it is very painful to read and understand the plight of a real alcoholic, and in our case, a real compulsive overeater. The disease of addiction is about denial, how a compulsive overeater thinks. No one really wants to stop the effects produced by alcohol, in our case, compulsive overeating. I love the effect. I don't know about you. It is a high like none other that takes us away, that effect that we chase repeatedly. What we truly want is to just stop all the negative consequences that come from being under the influence of key food ingredients. Each time the obsession is fulfilled by picking up, denial follows, rendering us able to believe that there is no real problem. We are cranking up the insanity. Truth be told, the denial began way before the day we picked up in our experience. The disease of addiction is about insanity. The story of the jaywalk perfectly illustrates, the jaywalker perfectly illustrates the madness of addiction, and it is madness. Doing the same thing repeatedly and expecting different, different results is often cited as the very definition of insanity. As a compulsive overeater, we may not need to be locked up in an insane asylum for the things that we do, but still, when the obsession to compulsive overeat comes in, i.e., walk into the face of oncoming traffic, willingly, excitingly, there is a total disconnect from reality. The urge to pick up entirely blots out the ability, the type of insanity that drives many of us to step one, hopefully to step one, admitting that we are completely unable to stop ourselves and frankly may not even want to, but something must give. Step one is like an oasis, honestly. We find a glimmer of promise and possibility that turns quickly to willingness, we find fellowship, understanding, friendship, and help. Real help. Real help. A guide holding the roadmap out, out of this place. The guide with fresh face, clear-minded, with flashlight in hand, shining a light on the pathway out. Hope and family. What will your step one consideration be this morning? Are you considering sanity over insanity? What will your surrender be? What will it take? Today our guest speaker has presented countless times on the concept of step one and the, most, and the must need to surrender and the, and the twisted thinking that precedes that first step out into the street. It will be fascinating to listen along to how he tied all of this into exactly a way, of compulsive, a way the compulsive overeater approaches his conundrum. He has a fair bit of his own story wrapped up into the details. Our speaker comes all the way from sunny SoCal today. He has honored the archives of A Vision for You by speaking and teaching several times over the years. A loyal member of Overeaters Anonymous, devoting much of his awake and resting hours to the service of helping a still-suffering compulsive overeater, whether it be in private with a one-on-one -on -one, or the chairperson of a rather large convention, and everything big and small in between. We at A Vision for You owe a great deal to our speaker. Please join me in serving up a very, very warm welcome to John Kay, again, all the way from SoCal. Good morning, John. Good morning, Melanie. Let me just double check that I'm being heard. I, <laughs> everything's oh, okay? Clear. Everything's oh, on cue okay. here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to first of all apologize to Melanie. I, I'm out of practice. Um, I, you know, I'm so used to Zoom these days. And, um, 
anyway, that's the reason we started a few minutes late. It was not Melanie. It was me forgetting how to do things. I have been, uh, it's been a while only because it's been, I've gone through a, a career change. Anyway, let me talk about step one and not me because that's way more important. <laughs> um, so step one, uh, we will get to the, the insanity of the jaywalker a little later, but let me first lay the, the groundwork about step one. So step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol or food in our choice, <laughs> our case, uh, and that our lives had become unmanageable. So, you know, in looking at the importance of step one, you, you need only look at the fact that it actually involves four chapters of the big book. You know, certainly more than the paragraph given each one in steps six and seven, which, which by the way, for me, are the key to long-term growth and serenity. Um, the big book addresses step one in the doctor's opinion, in Bill's story, there is a solution, and more about alcoholism. And rather than try and pick out all the things that I like in this chapter, which would you know, take the rest of the morning probably, uh, I'm going to just highlight some specific sentences and paragraphs that I think epitomize step one. So what word best epitomizes step one for me? For me, it's surrender. To me, the key to recovery is surrender. But my disease doesn't want me to surrender. <laughs> it keeps whispering in my ear another tactic, negotiation. But there is no negotiating with this disease. It will win every time because it can read your mind. As my friend Sheila J. always says about surrender, the battle is over and you lost. <laughs> so whose surrender is most important in AA? Do you think, was it Bill Wilson's surrender? How about Dr. Bob's surrender? After all, that was the start of AA, right? No, I would contend the most important surrender in the history of all 12-step programs was the surrender of Dr. William D. Silkworth. In the doctor's opinion, he says, quote, faced with this problem, alcoholism, if a doctor is honest with himself, he must sometimes feel his own inadequacy. Although he gives all that is in him, it's often not enough. And we physicians must admit that we have made little impression upon the program as a whole. Well, you know, this admission of powerlessness by one of the leaders in the field at that time, it changed everything. AA went from just two drunks helping each other into something that would turn into a worldwide phenomenon mainly because of that credibility that came by in being endorsed by someone in the medical profession. And that credibility changed everything. And here's the thing. If you've ever worked with doctors, they are not a humble lot who are quickly ready to admit their limitations. And, you know, Dr. Silkworth also broke important new ground, borne out by his opinion that, quote, the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. Well, you know, that was groundbreaking thinking then. He was definitely in the tiny minority of the scientific community that believed this. You know, well, guess what? If he were alive today, he would not be alone. There is overwhelming proof that alcoholism and addiction, at least the physical part, is a disease. This isn't just a group of people trying to take blame off of themselves and onto some abstract thought. I mean, it might have been abstract in the 1930s, but it sure isn't today. Science has isolated, for example, an enzyme in the human body, which gets wiped out by heavy drinking and makes the body not able to metabolize alcohol anymore. MRIs and PET scans have since been invented that show us pictures of the brain of the addict 
when they're using this substance. Parts of the brain actually like light up when they do. Not only that, parts of the brain light up even when they're just shown a picture of their substance. So what does this all have to do with compulsive eating? I know you're thinking this. Well, look, if we can understand that some of the things that were said in the 1930s couldn't be borne out by science until much later, can't we believe that the same is true for certain foods? I mean, we have to go back to 1960, right? In that year, Roseanne started OA in January. But coincidentally, in March of that year, the person who Bill Wilson considered his sponsor, Father Ed Dowling, wrote an article for the Grapevine, which is AA's version of Lifeline. In it, he says, quote, alcoholism is, when unchecked, gluttony for the alcoholic drink. AA's success with this type of gluttony opens new hope for the better-known gluttony, which is killing many people, respectfully autopsied as obesity or overweight. My 240-pound gluttony gave me two heart attacks. An alcoholic doctor got me down toward 180 when he advised a total AA abstinence from starch, butter, salt, and sugar. He said these four foods were probably my, quote, alcohol. And then Father Dowling ends with the most important revelation. He says abstinence is so much easier than temperance. You know, following that thread, some of the early members of OA being AA crossovers saw this, and it was, you know, the start of the gray sheet movement. You know, not exactly, but the word was out. Now, OA now does not have a food plan, and, and I think that's good. But for an awful lot of us, those foods mentioned were and are some of our problem foods. We're always we're already starting to have science on our side about these things. We know now about substances like dopamine and serotonin, as well as appetite hormones such as leptin and ghrelin. Now, don't let all this science talk overwhelm you, but it does help reinforce that we have a disease, and an important component of that disease is the allergy of the body. <clears throat> this is especially outlined in this important paragraph in the big book. Quote, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that, while they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as many do, the phenomenon of craving develops. They pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution to not drink again. This is repeated over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. And, you know, the doctor explained to people, which included friends and families of alcoholics, the real situation. He said, quote, these men were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. In other words, we didn't want to be compulsive eaters, but it was outside our control. I know for me, over and over, I would, as the book says, make many re resolutions, but never a decision. 
In my case, that meant wanting to stop. But I would do one of two things. Either I'd be committed to change, but without a plan, or come up with a plan and not commit to it. So either I had a plan or I had action, but not both. Well, you know what? This is important. Plans without action aren't plans. They're fantasies. And then the doctor identifies more about the disease when he says, quote, all these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. You know, our disease has a one-two punch, the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. Or as my favorite description of this goes, we can't stop once we start. We can't stop from starting again. And, and for those who don't know, that's from Lori C. If I'm going to steal, I'm going to steal from the best, you know. Now, I don't know about you, but those accumulated thoughts mentioned, while uh, restless, irritable, and disinfected, developing the phenomenon of craving, making resolutions, but never decisions, that nailed my behavior in multiple addictions before programming. We were using our substances to overcome a craving beyond our mental control. You know, we couldn't stop on our own. God knows we tried, and it drove us crazy, didn't it? I mean, we are smart people. Did you know that 45% of OA members have college degrees, and another 32% have graduate degrees? You know, take myself, for example. Yes, I'm smart. I have a high IQ. Hey, I've been on Jeopardy. You want to know how smart I was? I was wake up in my own vomit smart. I was 300 pounds and couldn't stop eating smart. The last thing I needed in those times of addiction was a brain. My own best thinking got me on that floor in my vomit. My own best thinking had me grabbing the fat around my stomach and wanting to cut it off with a knife. No, what I needed was help. I needed a power greater than myself. And I needed to be beaten into a state of reasonableness, as the book says, to realize this. And as the doctor said, quote, unless this person, me, can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. And so then we come into Bill's story, and I can so identify with parts of his story. You know, a child that divorced before it became acceptable. Uh, an unstable mother a history of alcoholism and heavy drinking in his family. Yeah, Bill and me, hard to believe two Irishmen have a family history of alcohol. <laughs> and, and so Bill goes on and says, quote, I fancied myself a leader. My talent would place me at the head of vast enterprises. And, and you see, Bill was a smart guy, a really smart guy. I mean, he invented something that really hadn't existed before, market research for investors. And as he says on page three, quote, for the next few years, fortune through money and applause my way. I had arrived. And then he says, quote, I proved to the world I was important. You know, I've come to understand that someone who says I proved to the world I was important is actually saying I proved to myself I was important. And I think Bill had the same mindset as I did before a program. He had arrived. But had he really, at least in his mind, maybe Bill was a lot like me before a program, an insecure person, racked with self-doubt, feeling he was a fraud. Maybe money and applause will bolster some people. But those of us who have had severe self-criticism in our past can only throw distractions at ourselves to try and convince ourselves we're okay. 
I mean, for example, my first AA sponsor was chairman of the board of a Fortune 500 company while he was falling down drunk. But his insecurity was actually the key to his tribe and his success. If he pushed himself hard enough, maybe people wouldn't realize what a fraud he was. And I think this is a classic thought in all our minds. Why? Because we compare our insides to other people's outsides. And what we don't know is that many of the other people around us are all thinking they're frauds too. So back to Bill. When the Depression came, despite you know the economy going to hell in a handbasket, Bill persevered, despite being drunk constantly. Well, he persevered for a while. But then, as he says, quote, Liquor ceased being a luxury, it became a necessity. And like all the rest of us, Bill got a chance to firsthand see the progressive nature of addiction. You know, and it took a lot of trips to Towns Hospital to help him see the situation clearly. But then Bill got it. He was an alcoholic. He couldn't drink safely. Okay, Eureka, that's the answer. Now, I can so identify with this part because when I came in OA many years ago, it finally dawned on me that I was a compulsive eater. Aha, now I know the answer. All I have to do is stay on my food plan a day at a time for the rest of my life. That's all I needed. I didn't need the steps or the program or the big book. You have to come to your stupid meetings. <laughs> well, anyone who want to guess how that turned out? <laughs> yeah. Well, just like Bill said, in no time at all, I was beating on the bar asking myself how it had happened. And the answer was simple, although I couldn't see it at the time. I was, and I am, a food addict. And no amount of willpower, or human power for that matter, can help me with my problem. All that great, great brain power I had harnessed to achieve so many other things in my life was useless. And this was especially true when I was knee-deep in my relapse cycle years later. By then, I had read the book, big book and worked the steps. And I could quote you every OA slogan and phrase that existed. I figured that would be the key. You know, as Bill says, quote, surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. Well, anyone want to guess how that one turned out? Yeah. Pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. What I know now is that no amount of knowledge of my disease alone can cure me. As a friend from here in Los Angeles always says, you can't fix a broken brain with a broken brain. And that was the lowest point of my eating history during my relapse. And this paragraph from Bill's story says it all about my situation. He says, quote, no words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol, or food in my case, was my master. Luckily for Bill and for me, the chain of miracles was already underway. If you've ever listened to a detailed history of the founding of AA, and trust me, Harlan can do this way better and more thoroughly than I ever can. But if you hear that history, you can't help but feel that AA and the 12 steps came about as a result of God playing chess. <laughs> I mean, think of it. You go from Dr. Young in Switzerland to Roland Hazard, who goes from there to New York. Then he goes up to Vermont. He meets this guy named Eddie, comes back down to New York, looks up his childhood friend from Vermont, Bill Wilson. Bill Wilson literally sees the light and gets sober. Then Bill goes to Akron, Ohio, 
a western city, and finds Dr. Bob and helps him get sober. Well, anyone want to calculate the odds on that happening exactly that way? And to those people, I mean, we have a wheeler-dealer stockbroker from New York who was adept at getting businesses going and advertising them, and a highly spiritual doctor from Akron whose main message was, keep it simple. Let's not louse it all up with overthinking and overhyping. And to me, that's the miracle, the synergy of those two personalities. I think if Bill had started AA all by himself, he might very well have got it going really well. But then he'd overdone it, got involved in God knows what scheme to make it bigger, and then it probably would have flamed out. If Dr. Bob had started AA by himself, then AA might have been a great, simple program of recovery that would have never gotten past Akron, Ohio. But, you know, together, I mean, magic, right? Again, tell me the odds of that. You know, as we always say, is it odd or is it God? And Bill boils recovery down to a core in this quote. He says, quote, simple but not easy. A price has to be paid. It meant the destruction of self-centeredness. Selfishness, self-centeredness. I got a funny feeling that's the root of our problems. <laughs> when I'm, I'm working in the addiction field with professionals who either don't know about the 12-step recovery or are turned off by some of the stuff they hear, especially the G word, you know, God, I tell them to simply think of 12-step programs as programs of ego reduction, because that's what we're here for. Now, I want to jump ahead to there as a solution, because the book goes into great length to explain to people again that this is a disease. It says, quote, if a person has cancer, all are sorry for him and no one is angry or hurt, but not so with the alcoholic illness. You know, and it's true. Everybody understands that people with cancer don't want it. But think about this. It is something they are growing in their bodies. It isn't injected into them from somewhere outside. But we all understand this isn't something they want in their bodies. And we can even believe this for various forms of brain diseases like epilepsy and schizophrenia, but not addiction and substance abuse. Again, the point of calling this a disease isn't just some lame excuse to help us offload the responsibility of our actions. It's to try and take away the stigma, you know, the guilt, the self-recrimination that we've all felt from having to carry our disease around with us. We have a disease, but we also have to take our medicine. And that's what we're all doing right now. And like any medicine, we need to follow the instructions on how to administer the medicine. So consider the big book, the label on the medicine bottle called recovery. And for any medicine to work to its full potential, you have to follow the clear-cut directions exactly. You know, there is a solution contains one of the book's most important sentences where it says, quote, we feel the elimination of our drinking is just but a beginning. In other words, abstinence isn't the finish line. It's the starting line. It's from here where we begin a program of change. I was told in my first weekend program, the same person will eat again. The chapter continues. It says, the fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. 
we are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or month ago. We were whipped out defense against the first drink. <laughs> a week or a month ago? <laughs> Try a few hours ago. Certainly last night at the most, right? I mean, how many of us have started the day saying, okay, it's a new diet, it's a new way of life, right? And how many of us didn't make it past morning break at work, right? Well, luckily, again, there is a solution. And how the solution manifests itself comes in the paragraph on page 25 that says, quote, the great fact is just this and nothing less, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which has revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and towards God's universe. Again, the same person will use again. But the person who makes the changes suggested in the big book stands a much better chance. But there are some strings like this one. Quote, we believe there is no middle-of-the-road solution. You know, long before OA, society had a phrase, you can't have your cake and eat it too. But that's exactly what our disease wants to do. It gets us to negotiate. Instead, we have to, as the chapter tells us, work recovery with, quote, all the desperation of drowning men. And, you know, the book is replete with this theme, with phrases like willing to go to any lengths, half measures availed us nothing, and with complete abandon. Now, for me, the chapter that really gets at the guts of step one is more about alcoholism. It's my favorite chapter. Quote, no one, no person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Yep, but I am different from my fellows, and I have to come to peace about that. I have to do some things that are sometimes inconvenient, like thinking ahead about my food. I don't have the luxury of saying, well, if I get hungry, there's a Starbucks on every corner. I'll just pop in and grab a muffin or something. But you know what? I'll tell you something. If I have to have a disease that wants to kill me, I'd rather have this one than some of the others. I mean, I've known friends with HIV who had to take loads of pills every day. I have friends who've had cancer who had to take drugs that made them sick and made their hair fall out. And what do I have to do? I have to plan my food and go to meetings. I'm sure those friends with those diseases would trade diseases with me in a minute. Now, here's something very important that I think is specific to just a way. Not only do I have to admit that I am bodily and mentally different from my fellows outside the rooms, I have to admit that I am bodily and mentally different from my fellows within OA. I mean, some people can eat foods I cannot. I can eat certain foods others cannot. We are all different in that regard. And I do deride them if they have a looser abstinence than I do. That would be my ego trying to make me better than them. I mean, I celebrate that they got to the rooms before their disease progressed to the point that mine did. You know, as more about alcoholism says, we have had, quote, countless vain attempts to prove that we could eat like other people. I remember paraphrasing that sentence to a sponsee one day. I, I think I said something like, it's the desire of every compulsive eater to someday eat like normal people. And he laughed and said, no, we don't. We don't want to eat like normal people. We want to eat the way we want to eat and have none of the bad effects. <laughs> and, and he was right, right? I mean, have you ever gone out to dinner with normies and one of them orders some, like, 
dessert that is so good people want to name their children after it. <laughs> and so then the normie gets it and takes one bite and goes, oh, that's too rich, and pushes it away. I mean, what? <laughs> I mean, I don't understand the phrase too rich in any definition of the word rich. And to me, this chapter contains the step one thesis paragraph on page 30, where it says, quote, we have learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people or presently may be has to be smashed. Now, there are particular parts of this chapter I think more closely address those of us who have suffered from or are presently suffering from a relapse cycle. Now, I call it a relapse cycle because for most of us who suffered or suffered from it in the past, it isn't a one-off thing. You know, it's a week on, it's a week off. A month abstinent, a month not. And this chapter defined my relapse cycle perfectly, where it said, quote, we alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. We know that no real alcoholic ever recovers control. All of us felt at times that we were regaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. We are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of progressive illness. Over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. Again, the battle is over, and we lost. <laughs> now, I have a lot to say about relapse, uh, and you can find those some talks up on the Vision for You website from both conventions uh, that are there, and I did a special edition in December 2015, but I don't want to dwell on relapse today. I want to jump ahead to my favorite part of this chapter, the stories about the insanity of this disease. Now, I know talking about the insanity is slightly overlapping into step two, but I don't think you can address a person's resistance to step one without talking a bit on the subject. So we have Jim, we have the Jay Walker, and we have Fred. Now, for a long time, I thought these three stories were essentially just restatements of the same point to be made about the insanity of the disease. But what I've come to see is that these are three stories that highlight three different aspects of the insanity of addiction. Now, so first there's Jim, who puts whiskey in his milk and convinces himself he can drink it with impunity, where he says, quote, suddenly the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. <laughs> well, well, that didn't turn out well, did it? <laughs> now, if we look at this story, <clears throat> we think it's a crazy thing, right? Well, well look, who, you know who probably also thought it was a crazy thing? Jim but just not until the next day. How many of us who have slipped said to ourselves the next morning, what the hell was I thinking? And the answer was, I wasn't doing the thinking at that moment. My disease was. And then there's the jaywalker. You know, on one level, this is about doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result, right? Yeah, but I would put a slightly different spin on it if I were using this analogy. Yes, I keep getting hit by those streetcars over and over. But in my mind, it's simply about finding the right street. There's got to be one street in this town where I will be able to dodge the streetcars and not get hit. 
In other words, I can do so many things in my life with my brain, I just haven't yet figured out how to control my eating. And I convince myself that the answer is right around the next corner. No, no, the streetcar is right around the next corner. But then there's Fred. Fred has the most dangerous form of this disease, insanity, the strange mental blank spot. He tells the story in this chapter, quote, not only had I been off guard, I had made no fight whatever against the first drink. This time I had not even thought of the consequences at all. I commenced to drink as carelessly as though the cocktails were ginger ale. I now remembered what my alcoholic friends had told me, how they had prophesied that if I had an alcoholic mind, the time and place would come where I would drink again. They said that though I did raise a defense, it would one day give way before some trivial reason for having a drink. So what happened to Fred? Well, as it also says in the chapter, quote, self-knowledge will fix it. Well, if that were true, we'd have all spent a few weeks in OA, heard everything we needed to hear, and left, and never to eat compulsively again, right? Well, what was the answer to Fred? Well, a couple of guys showed up to tell him about it. They said, quote, they outlined the spiritual answer and the program of action which a hundred of them had followed successfully. In other words, the only inoculation against those strange mental blank spots was working steps. The only answer is to be rid of that alcoholic mind. To me, that comes from continuing to work the steps. You know, the steps aren't like a rite of passage to be done once and be finished with. They're a way of life. I need to keep moving forward to keep becoming a better person. Because if I do, I like myself more and more. And a person who likes themselves doesn't want to do self-destructive things like compulsive eating. And I need to help others. So I remember what it was like. As someone I know once said, I'm not a slow learner, I'm a quick forgetter. Now, you know, this insanity we have around the food is sometimes hard to wrap our heads around because many of us have achieved great things in other areas of our lives. I mean, we're above average intelligence. I gave you those figures and the education figures before. How the heck can you call us insane? Because the disease resides, as the book says, quote, parallel with our sound reasoning. The thing is, it's a very specific kind of insanity. If my mental problems were more general, you know, if I found myself walking through traffic in a tutu, then I'd be able to say, wow, man, I'm messed up. I better not trust my brain. But this isn't the case, except in this one area, or in two in my case. <clears throat> the answer came to me one day about this specific insanity when I read a particularly good definition of the word insanity. It said, a state of mind that prevents normal perception. Let me repeat that because it's important. A state of mind that prevents normal perception. You know, think about what makes up sanity and how we go through life in the same way. It's mostly through decisions. We make thousands of decisions, big and small, every day. And on the whole, we do a really good job of it. I mean, you got up this morning, you decided what to wear, you decided what to have to breakfast, and I'm sure these are all good decisions. And how did you make those good decisions? Through your perceptions, sight, sound, facts, reasoning. 
reasoning based on the data coming in to that 100 billion cell computer in our brains. But we have a disease that, like I said, quote, prevents normal perception. In other words, to put it in those same computer terms, it's corrupting the data coming into our computers. It's why we can twist logic to the point where putting whiskey in a glass of milk seems like a perfectly good and logical idea. It's why one day I remember in my relapse putting down a pint of butter pecan ice cream on my food list as just some dairy and nuts. <laughs> you know, nuts being the operative word here, by the way. But we've all done some version of that. Now, this topic is really designed for step two, but it needed to be talked about in reference to these stories in the big book. And that's why I first have to admit that I am powerless over the disease. To me, and again, this is personal opinion here, it's why I think food is way harder to recover from than drugs and alcohol. You know, a few years back, I wrote an article for an outside website, and it was called Food is Deadlier Than Drink. And, and I managed to get a bunch of AA people pissed off at me about it. But it's true. Compulsive eating in all of its manifestations kills more people every year than all the other addictions combined, and by a lot. And I sometimes get kidded over an AA about OA. Oh, what do they find you in the gutter with some Twinkies? You get sent to the Betty Crocker Clinic, you know. Well, that's when I tell them I bury two sponsees in this program, not in AA. One named Dan C. was in the middle of a relapse, and they found him in a chair surrounded by his binge foods. And the other, Jim B., was 600 pounds, and he died in a fire because he was too big to get out. And when I thought I might die of this disease, I always thought it would be due to a heart attack or a stroke. But because of Jim, I realized that sometimes in life you have to move fast. And also, CPR doesn't work on you if you're morbidly obese. Chest compression just compress the fat, not the lungs. And I know I speak for many people here in Vision who've been in the program for a long time that we can name person after person who are not here anymore as a direct result of this disease. And I don't mean not here as in not in meetings. I mean not here as not in walking the earth anymore. You know, heart attacks, strokes, diabetes, young girls dying of heart attacks because of their anorexia, and many, way too many suicides. As it says in the doctor's opinion, quote, making the supreme sacrifice rather than continue the fight. Anyway, that's the program I'm in. I'm in the one with the body count. It's not a stop between Jenny Craig and Weight Watchers for me. It's a matter of life and death. You know, they call me an old timer, but all of those of us who have been around this long, we're not old timers. We're survivors, literally for me. Now, I've been a compulsive eater so far back as I can remember. And then I found alcohol, and for a few years, my eating was under control because I was drinking. And eventually, then, I was eating and drinking. In other words, I was, I always say I was fat, then I was a drunk, then I was a fat drunk. Now, I also know that my alcoholism was a gift because it slammed me down hard enough to find that program, to admit powerlessness there, and that in turn led me here. If I had never drank, I don't think my brain would have been able to accept my powerlessness. I would have been Jim. I would have been 600 pounds, and I would have been dead years ago because of this disease. So I've been spared twice, once from alcohol, once from food. 
Now, maybe you're not like me. Maybe you haven't cheated dead. But if you were in the food the way I was, you're living the life of the living dead. Get up, go to work, come home, draw the blinds, turn on the TV, get into the food. Get up, go to work, come home, draw the blinds. In an incredibly big and wondrous world, my world was incredibly small and getting smaller by the day. Uh, we say the only difference between me and the guy in the graveyard at that point was the guy in the graveyard didn't get cable. Now, when it comes to admitting powerlessness, there are two main things that make this disease harder than most other addictions. First, we have to continue to take into our bodies the general substance to which we're addicted. Now, I know people say, well, alcoholics still have to drink, they just don't drink alcohol. And, and that's true. But I can only speak for this alcoholic when I say that I've had a lot of liquid drinks in my sobriety, and none of them ever came close to setting off the phenomenon of craving. But I've had upsetting situations or bad days where when I was finished with my abstinent dinner, I wanted to go to the refrigerator and clean it out. Because at that moment, I was not in a fit spiritual condition. And food opportunities were all around me, as they are for all of us. So we have to figure out what foods we can eat and not eat. You know, unlike alcoholism and drugs, where people admit powerlessness over just an entire group of substances they're addicted to, we need to figure out which foods we're powerless over. Meanwhile, we have a disease whispering in our ear, nah, you can eat that. And that's why a lot of us use that red light, yellow light, green light paradigm. Now, now someone says, I don't know if it's Kim G, Ruth M, somebody says that in reality, there's no such thing as a yellow light food. And of course there isn't. It either kicks off the phenomenon of craving or it doesn't. But for a lot of us, it's a years-long process to figure out which pile, red or green, that every food belongs in. Because some of them are very subtle. The toughest aspect of our disease that has to do with powerlessness is the manner in which it delivers the pain. Drugs and alcohol slam you down. They give you acute pain, which is a tremendous motivator to surrender. Compulsive eating causes us a dull, chronic pain. The kind of pain that's bad enough to tell us we should do something about the problem, but often not enough pain to get us to be willing to go to any lengths to deal with it. Also, this disease is very patient, and if we have good brains, we keep moving the goalposts, right? Well, I'll never get to 200. Well, okay, I'm at 200, but I'm never going to get to 220. You know, you start only looking at yourself in the mirror from the neck up. You start wearing stretchy waistband pants. You slowly begin to accept more and more things that were previously unacceptable. And there's only one way out of that battle, total surrender. Admitting we are powerless over our eating by being willing to let go of all the foods that do or might cause us problems. You know, the holy grail in program for me was always embodied in the one phrase from the 10th step promises that says, quote, we will be placed in a position of neutrality with the food. Well, the achievement of that goal is incredibly easy and it's blazingly simple. Are you ready for the secret? Here it is. If you want to be placed in a position of neutrality with the food, 
you need to be willing to let go of any of the foods with which you cannot be neutral. In other words, total surrender. And finally, there's the second step of part one, admitting that our lives have become unmanageable. Now, when I first heard the last part of step one, I thought it was in the past tense. Once I admitted that I was powerless and stopped drinking and drugging and eating, my life would then be manageable. <laughs> well, what I've come to believe is that this part of step one was just softening me up for the brutal reality that my life is still unmanageable and always will be. You know, it doesn't matter how sober or abstinent I am, I will always be powerless over people, places, and things. So I had to deal with one of my core character defects, which is my control issues. Now, a lot of us grow up in dysfunctional environments where we learn through our experiences that control was important. As a kid growing up in an alcoholic household, well, two actually, Control felt like a matter of life and death for me, and maybe then it was to an extent. But by the time I reached the program, I was no longer living in that house. I was no longer a child, and most importantly, I no longer had to run the show. The trouble is nobody had told my brain that yet. <laughs> so in the beginning, it was not only important, desperately important that I get my way, it was important that you understood that my way was better. Again, you want to guess how that went? <laughs> you know, I didn't, like they say in the book, I didn't just step on the toes of my fellow man. I did like a clog dance on him. I had to come understand, I had to understand something that was really important. And I heard it best put by someone's sponsor. The, per, the sponsor said to her, other people are not imperfect versions of you. And the funny thing was that these various attempts at control were all of little consequence anyway. Even though they constantly calmed my anxious being, they really weren't the answer. Almost all of us, almost all those things I think I thought I had control over were simply illusions of control. The amount of things we really have control over in our lives is pitifully small. But we feel better by deluding ourselves into believing otherwise. Now, I'll give you an example. I mentioned to somebody I hadn't worked for an actual company in decades. You know, I was a comedian for many years, and then I was a private uh, independent contractor in the, in the computer field. And now uh, I have my own private, you know, substance abuse counseling practice. And the person said, oh, I couldn't do that. I need the security of working for a large company and getting a weekly paycheck. And I said, well, you know, I can understand that. You want to you wanna walk into a big skyscraper and work for a company that's a, let's say it's like part of the number three corporation in America. And that company ends up taking up the whole skyscraper. Now imagine that skyscraper is in a big city like, I don't know, Houston. And you walk into that building on a Monday and you work all day. But on Tuesday, you show up and the doors are locked. And that company is called Enron. And that job you felt was so secure, you could see yourself working there until you retired, is gone in the flesh. That's the security you had. It was an illusion. There are so many things in life that can happen in a second. A loved one you planned on spending your life with walks out the door and never comes home alive. I live in West Los Angeles in a nice home in a nice neighborhood. It is a dream scenario for most people. And in a moment, 
the ground could start shaking and that nice home becomes a pile of kindling. Life, if we really stop to think of it, and all of the possible curveballs it could throw at us, is incredibly scary. And to me, there's only one way to make it less scary, and that's to believe in a higher power that has my back. That power is not going to take me all this way and drop me on my head. And if it's been here all my life to help me deal with anything that life's had to throw at me up until now, it'll be there for me in the future. So how did I find that connection, that real security, that strength? Well, there is a solution. And how to get there starts in the next step, step two. In addition to addressing the insanity of the disease, it gives us hope as to how to live a life of serenity with a lot less fear of the future. To get it, we had to come to believe in a power greater than ourselves. And for, for everyone, finding that connection takes time and work. And finding a way to develop that relationship, one that works for you. I mean, we all get a hand-me-down definition of God and a higher power given to us. What we need to do is find one that works for us. Now, it might very well be the same one handed to you, but even if it is, it'll then be your higher power, not someone else's. So just to wrap up, for me personally, I have a partner in recovery today that I talk to and listen to on a daily basis, my higher power. The important thing I need to remember is this higher power is my partner, not my servant. You know, I also listen to my higher power and the people my higher power puts in my life to help guide me. I'm a huge believer in the grounded out concept of higher power, the plural, as outlined in the big book. God, myself, and another human being. That's because I need help communicating with my higher power. As it says in the AA 12 and 12, quote, going it alone in spiritual matters is dangerous. I mean, I can go off and connect with my higher power. I can pray my thoughts and then meditation and do meditation to listen for the response. And I can come away convinced that God told me that I could now consider chocolate a vegetable. <laughs> but then I talk to my sponsor and he says, nah, not today. <laughs> but you see, this is the problem. I am an addict. I cannot always tell the difference between the voice of my higher power and the voice of my disease just doing a really good impression of my higher power. And so this step, step one, and the steps to follow, have taught me that my life is still unmanageable and that I'm powerless over people, places, and things. The only real thing I have power over, and the big book taught me this, is myself and my reactions to life and the world. You know, they'll tell you when you come into the program that if you get abstinent, you'll lose the extra weight off your body, which is true. What they don't always tell you is that if you come here to learn and to work the steps, that you'll lose even more weight off your shoulders. And to me, that's the real gift of the steps. And it all starts with this step, step one. Thanks for letting me share. Thank you very, very much, John. Oh, boy, just listening to that, you know, just feeling the the wisdom that was born out of experience, and I'm sure sometimes excruciating experience. I don't know about you, but sometimes I can yeah. 
drugs through backwards with barbed wire, but it's been every bit worth it, and you share it so beautifully. Thank you so much for giving so much of yourself today. It, it's never, never a disappointment. Thank you Thanks, again. Jeremy. Yeah, you betcha. We're going to ask John for his contact information at the conclusion of the meeting here today, so have pen and paper ready and um, be prepared for that. You may may very well find you want that real soon after. But for right now, I want to give you the share ID number for today's meeting so that you can go back and listen to it again. These kinds of presentations are absolutely worth going back and just exuding out the details. So that share ID number is 19161, and that will be for, day, for today, Sunday, July 10th, 2022. Now, the lines are going to be open for questions. If you have a question for John, please unmute your phone by depressing star 1 on your phone keypad. Offer your first name and the first initial of your last name, and perhaps your state if you'd like. Once you've asked your question, please immediately press star 1 again to remute your line. That would be very helpful, as John would then forward in to answer your question. Who would like to ask John a question this morning about his presentation? Loretta H., Loretta H. Mm-hmm. Mary P. Mary P. Paul P. Paul P. Gotcha. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Anyone else out there? Pressing star one. Okay. I just feel like there's somebody on the urge out there, so I didn't want to miss him, but let's go right now. We'll circle back. You know that feeling, you know, ah, ah, I can't see my voice. Anyway, let's go with Loretta H. first and then followed by Mary P. Hi, Loretta. Your question, please. Star one. Give her just a minute to position herself with Star morning, One Melody. There you are. Good Hello. morning, Melody. Hello. And John, I your share was phenomenal as usual. I met you and was honored to meet you on the way up to um, Bill Wilson's house um, on the last convention. So I can even mm-hmm. visualize John's face in you right now. <laughs> But my question is, you talked about control, and for me, um, my disease, both of my diseases, was much more behavior-orientated than substance-orientated. It really, for me, the behaviors are my spiritual malady. So do you address that also with your job and with people that you sponsor? Oh, okay. Thank you for that question. It's a very good one. Um, Yes, when it comes to behavior, um, I tell people, what I do now, I work at a treatment center and I deal with a lot of people uh, who actually have a number of ailments mental-wise, including addiction, substance abuse, you know, some eating disorder people. And but others that are just anxiety, depression, and all these things. And one of the things I said always say is, 
I tell them, because the Muslims are young, I say, I was right where you were. I was, even after I got sober, I would had horrible depression, anxiety, and all kinds of things. And I said, for me, the key was to get the substances stopped and then really work. And I, and I talk about 12-step, but I sort of keep it oblique. I said, some of the stuff from my recovery program helped, but also therapy really helped. I'm a huge believer in outside help. Bill Wilson was a huge believer in outside help because I could have the best sponsor in the world, but if they're not a professional in that, in that setting, they're only going to be able to ever sort of get down, you know, one level or so. You know, I did a, I did a fifth step with the therapist, you know, I read the thing to the therapist and it was great because as I'm reading some of the things on my fourth step of things that happened when I was younger, he would say, well, do you see how you still do that now? And he would point that kind of thing out. And I really believe, you know, again, our behaviors, you know, our behaviors are what, what the world sees that interact with us. And I have to try and be living the kind of program that the book talks about, you know, do I do it perfectly? Hardly, <laughs> you know, um, but I need to remember, uh, you know, for me, I need to remember, first of all, that I'm human. You know, there's there a lot of times people talk about self-love and things like that. I like the phrase self-acceptance and the acceptance that's most important is that I'm a human being and I am just going to stumble royally. I'm going to make stupid mistakes. <laughs> I'm going to do all kinds of crazy stuff that, I would prefer not to, but I accept that that's the human condition. I used to beat myself to death over anything where I wasn't perfect. You know, there's a lady uh, does this talk on TED Talk where it talks about self-compassion. That's her sort of thing. And she explains that the difference between self-esteem and self-compassion is that when you're dealing with self-esteem, there's a part of your brain that is comparing yourself to perfection. And you know what? None of us are going to be able to get there comparing ourselves to perfection. But what she talks about is that self-compassion sort of says, grade yourself on the human curve. How am I doing as a human being? Because, you know, I, I talk about this a lot. I said, you know, we're all just these little kids running around in adult suits. And none of us got the manual, you know, the manual on how to do life, how to have everything work. And as a result of not getting that manual, we spend our entire lives in a series of trial and error, trial and error, trial and error. And the trouble is, is that my error sometimes affects you. Sometimes your error affects me. And then I also beat the hell out of myself when I do have an error. Instead of just sort of saying, hey, I didn't get the manual. I want to live the best way I can. I want to do the best. But I have to sort of accept that it's not always going to be that way. You know, I'm a huge believer in sort of an active version of step six and seven. Um, especially in step seven, I don't expect, you know, uh, my higher power is just going to be, you know, the, the character defect fairy and take it away. I have to do my part. And... If I do, and I know I'm trying to live the best way I can, I, you know, again, I, I like myself more. And if I like myself, I don't want to do things that are self-destructive. And, 
And so I am a huge believer in, and I still do. I mean, I I have a therapist. I mean, I used to see him about three times a week. I now see him once every other week. But it's more about having, it's the same thing with sponsorship. I always say if you've got a certain amount of time in the program, it's not about, um, sponsoring is not about, you know, uh, I don't know how to put it. You know, you're, you're not teaching anymore. Person, if a person's got a couple of years in the program, they're going to pretty much know everything they need to know, whether they do it or not. It's about having an objective third party. That's what my sponsor is. And when I sponsor, it's an objective third party. And I think a therapist is the same way, only with a little bit more education and ability to get down to a deeper level of why I do some of the things I do. And to me, that's, that's the important thing. Like, like you mentioned, behavior versus substance. Once the substance is down, that's, again, that's the starting line. It's not, not the finish line. I hope that answered your question. Thank you very much, Loretta H., for your question. Mary P., you're up next with your question. And then, Paul P., you'll come in right after. Hi, Mary. Where are you Hi. from? Hi. Good morning. Um, I'm from Colorado. And... Um, Really enjoyed your share. Thank you so much. Um, what did your complete psychic change look like? Hmm. Well, there's a good question. Um, <laughs> what did my complete psychic change? Well, I think I think it was a couple of things. Um, I think I learned to be uncomfortable. You know, there's an old-timer here in Ira from uh, the Valley here, and he always uses the phrase, fight for your right to be uncomfortable. I spent my life trying to run away from that. I was an emotional pain and so I never wanted to feel uncomfortable. And there's only one way to really do that, and that's to anesthetize yourself all the time in one way or another because it's the human condition. We're going to feel uncomfortable. We're going to feel pain, emotional pain. And, and somehow that started to change. And then the other part for me was sort of coming to some connection with the higher power. Now, I can tell you that the higher power I have now looks nothing like the one I grew up with. I grew up with a very dogmatic religion, and it just didn't work for me. I believe the tenets of that religion are perfectly wonderful and the person on whom that religion was based is perfectly wonderful but i had to lose this the clutter in between and know that you know again as you said a lot of times there's a higher power in innate me and for me the huge part of that was just sort of coming to the idea that everything happens for a reason that, if, if you were to encapsulate what my view of higher power is, it's everything's happening for a reason. You know, Robert Browning said, God's in his heaven and all's right with the universe. And that doesn't mean I like it, you know. Um, I try to explain. It, it's so funny. There's a, a new sort of therapy thing out there now, and I'm not going to go into it because it's outside the issue. But so much of it is based on what we know in 12 steps. It's, you know, part of its thing is, is acceptance. And, and how much easier my life goes when I do that. You know, when I can just sort of say, okay, I don't like this, but 
I'm not going to, whatever it is we accept, I've, I've actually been working on another special edition all about this kind of thing, you know, getting to the point where I've learned to just sort of say, okay, whatever, and not, you know, it may be something that even hurts me in the moment, but if it hurts me, you know, I had somebody who said something very hurtful to me about a week ago. And the thing is, is that person hurt me on a Tuesday. But I hurt me on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, until I was willing to accept it, accept the situation and let it go. And to use another word that puts acceptance and people together, forgiveness. And I just found doing that and you know, losing as many expectations as I can was so important. Dr. Paul and, uh, uh, on acceptance talks about my level of serenity being, you know, pretty much inversely proportional to the distance between my expectations and reality. I pretty much take life as it is. And trust me, I did not do that when I first came here. I spent so much time living the reverse serenity prayer totally obsessed over stuff I had absolutely no control over. And that time was wasted because I could have used it to work on the things I did have control over. And today that's, that's what I want to do. And yeah, that sort of just helps me with life. I don't know if that, that answers it or not. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you very much, Mary P. from Colorado for your question. Paul P., your question now. And then we're going to open up for at least a couple, two or three John, questions. John, thank you very much for your service. Hello. I enjoyed your share very much. Uh, coming from an Italian family, uh, <laughs> food was always an issue. Mm -hmm. And uh, I grew up knowing nothing else. Uh, and coming to OA, I learned a lot about it and that it is an illness, a sickness. And I have been through other programs of like Weight Watchers and Jenny Craig and all that sort of mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. stuff. But my question is when you get a feeling of urgency to eat something after all of the day is done and you had all your meals, mm. what do you do? How do you uh, explain uh, that problem? Uh, uh, yeah. A blank, yeah. Like, a, a blank overeating type of deal. I'm not explaining it right, but I, I think, think I up my <laughs> okay. Yes, I do. Thank you, Paul. Yeah, well, it's funny. Okay. I, yeah. Um, I, uh, in addition to all these various groups I do, I do a group on recovery and at least once every, I don't know how long I, I make the entire session about cravings. And one of the things I, I have a document that, or it's a, it's an article that talks about the average craving lasts 20 minutes. If you can find a way to sort of hang in there. Or again, I came, when I came in again, we, I came in before these wonderful cell phones that I have, like, I don't know how many, the hundreds, if not thousands of numbers in my phone. I had a list I carried around with me and I was taught, this is old time AA stuff. You got a craving, call somebody, call somebody, and talk it out. 
Now, the reality is my disease is going to want to talk me out of calling somebody. Oh, no, don't you, you'll bother them or something like that. Because if I get the person on the phone, they might actually talk me out of doing anything. But that's exactly the kind of thing to be able to reach out and, and just sort of say, I'm going through it. And, and sometimes to just be able to sit there and consider it, you know, that, okay, I'm going through a craving. And if you can, you know, that whole, there's a great line I remember hearing from Alan on, don't just do something, stand there. Meaning, I don't have to react just because there's a thought in my head. This is part of, a, again, this other therapy thing I'm doing. You said, you realize that your brain is this big computer, you know, like in, in all computers, there is a, a thing called the CPU. It's the central processing unit. And it's, it's sort of the main junction, which everything goes through it. Right? Well, that's what our, our brain has that. And it's taking all this information in, but it's not pure objective information. It's getting tinged with things from our past, ways we feel about ourselves, the addiction of the thing. And what it does is it, it takes all that data and it shoves out in its output a thought. Well, that thought isn't necessarily true. And the ability to stop and sit and say, here's the thought. What's the reality of it? Instead of just automatically reacting zombie-like to it and saying, oh, I've got this urge, I have to go eat, you know. And, and to me, there, you have to start to be able to realize this is going to be part of life. Occasionally, I am going to get this still, especially if I'm under a lot of pressure. Somebody I know when I first started said an alcoholic under enough pressure reverts to type, meaning it's always going to be my go-to. Well, and the reality is I look now, alcohol's not my go-to when I get under pressure. It's food. I was a compulsive eater who went through an alcoholic phase. But today, if I'm in a bad place and my disease crops up, and it still does every once in a while, it's food I'm going to think about. But, you know, that and various other things, I can now just sit there and when that thought comes in, think about it and go, well, Thanks for sharing. <laughs> you know, it's a great program line, even when you disagree with somebody. Well, thanks for sharing. And yes, yeah, and it's whispering, oh, wouldn't this be good right now? Well, yes, it would. Thanks for sharing. But no, what it, you know, what it would do is we just set off, you know, a thing that, you know, again, like dancing with the gorilla, you're going to stop when the gorilla wants you to stop. And I've learned that today. I don't, I am not like other people, like it says in that first line more about alcoholism. And it's okay. And if I can hold off, make a phone call, do things like that, you'll find that that will go away. I never knew that because every time I had that craving, it always had the same ending, which was me to go eat. It never dawned on me. I think it was part of me that thought, oh, if I don't give in to this, it's just going to keep staying there until I eat. No, it will dissipate. Got to be willing to do all the things the program tells you to, like pick up a phone and call somebody. I hope that helps. Thank you very much, Paul P., for your question this morning. It looks like we might have time for one, maybe two more questions. If you have that burning desire, now is your chance before we close and say goodbye to John this morning. Annette F. Annette F. And then Mav, I think I heard you, and that would be it, because I don't think we're going to even maybe be able to squeak out Two, we'll see what we can do, though, in the interest of time. But thank you so much. Annette, yours first, please, from Florida. Okay. Yes, from Florida. Thank you, John. You uh, 
very educational, very straightforward, and compassionate. Now, and I don't know if this is a question you can answer, but I'm going to try. I'm a caregiver. Mm-hmm. And the food that I like and I is good for me is not the food that my husband cares for. And I came with every screwed up his taste buds anyway. But mm-hmm. I like the food that he likes, which, of mm-hmm. course, is not doing my program any good. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure how to, because there's always self-pity that squeezes in and, and makes it, oh, forget it. Do you have any yeah. suggestions? Well, yeah. I mean, you're in one of the toughest situations there is. First of all, acknowledge that to yourself. It is really hard if you have food you know you need to stay away from and you have to sit there opposite somebody who is eating it. And um, the thing I can, I know is that, like, if I'm sitting across from somebody, you know, like I go out to dinner with my wife, she'll get a glass of wine and she'll drink half of it and leave it. I just don't understand that. But it's her wine, you know, it's not mine. And, and there's a part of me that just, has been able to come to the point of going, okay, it's not mine, you know? And uh, I know years ago, I remember somebody, that one of the topics came up, I was on a panel and this old timer was asked about, you happen to be near the holidays and how do you deal with an office where where all this food is coming in? And, and, and the, she said, well, is this office also have people who have purses under their desks? And they went, yeah. But you don't take that money, right? No, because that's not your your money. If you can start to see this, this is just not my food, and realize, gee, it would be nice to have a whatever that is on the other person's plate, but it's not going to stop with a thing. It will set it off, and you'll be back where you you know on your your thing. And the whole idea of realizing, and if you get a chance, maybe listen to one of the relapse things I do, because I go into the idea that are you know our disease is like the world's best salesman. And to just realize that that's not what I really want to do. But in that moment of impulse, it's exactly what I want to do. But again, then I deal with that thing like in the, you know, the whiskey in the mill. Why the heck did I do that? I've been doing so well. And yet, bam, in that moment. And again, the number one thing I would say for you is, is acknowledge you're in a tough position. And it's, you know, if there's any way that it can be made easier if he has the compassion to help you in some way, not necessarily eat the food you want, but to try not to make it any harder on you. Uh, that would, you know, be an important thing. I know if that helps. Thank you very much, Annette, Ephraim, for your question this morning. And we're going to wrap up with Matt J.F.'s question this morning. Hi, Matt. Thank you, Melanie. Thank you, John, Mm -hmm. for for your wonderful lead this morning. Uh, You've used the words acceptance and surrender during this morning's talk, and I just wondered if you could talk about how you define each and what the difference is between them. Oh, okay, yeah, acceptance and surrender. Well, actually, they are sort of two different things. Um, It's so funny. Like I said, I've been working on this other special edition, and I'm talking about that a lot. I love to tell a lot of times people have trouble with the word acceptance because it's it, it sounds like a very passive thing. No, I got to accept it. Oh, this is happening. Oh, well, I just got to accept it. And I always say acceptance is actually a very active thing. 
And acceptance is actually a very selfish thing. And I mean selfish in the good definition of the word selfish, like self-care. Because whatever it is you're accepting, almost always it's something you don't like. You know, nobody's sitting around going, oh, I have to accept I hit the lottery. No, it's going to be something you don't like. It's either a situation you don't like or it's somebody you don't like or some action that somebody has done that you don't like. And the thing about it is those are almost things always that over which you have no control. You know, whether it's something from the past that's happened or it's a situation that you don't like, it's going to be that way. Those are going to be immutable, no matter how you feel about it. So the only one who is being um, hurt by this is yourself. You know, if I can't, you know, if I won't accept whatever the situation is, I don't have to. But I'm the one who sits there with stomach acid churning in me. I'm the one who grits his teeth every time he thinks about it, you know. And the whole idea of acceptance is saying, okay, I'm done with you. I'm done with you living right free in my head. I am done with this. I am letting it go, you know. And I am saying, I, 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 I care about me enough that I'm, I'm going to accept it. Even though, and again, I, I had this talk, acceptance doesn't mean you like it. It doesn't mean you condone it. It doesn't mean you agree in any way with it. You're just sort of saying, okay, accept it. And again, the, 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 the human version of acceptance with somebody else's forgiveness, just being willing to do that. And in terms of surrender, it's, it's again, it's another one of those words that some newcomers really bristle at. And I just say it's about giving up the fight. You know, I've heard people say, do you have any more ideas? You know, if, if you have other ideas, feel free. I know I ran out of ideas. And I, again, part of this was, you know, again, I came in my own best thinking. My own wonderful IQ got me in 300 pounds. Uh, and since I'm the guy who drove the car into the ditch, maybe I should let somebody else tell me how to get the car out of it. And uh, that means being willing to just, for me, I always tell people, and I know we have to wrap up. My shorthand on my first, the first three steps is one, powerlessness. If you could have done this yourself, you'd have done it by now. Step two, there are people here who can help you. Step three, go ask somebody to help you and then take direction because right now that's what is needed. I needed a sponsor when I came in way more than I needed a higher power. Now, the reality is the sponsor was a connection to a higher power. But I needed the grounded outfit. And surrender is just saying, okay, I'm out of ideas. Tell me what to do. And that's what first worked for me in AA. And when I was going through my relapse and was dealing with that, one of the things that came to me one day is, what, what worked for me in AA? Oh, I know. I came in and I said, tell me what to do. You tell me to go stand buck naked in the middle of the street and it'll help me with my sobriety. I'll go do it. And I meant it. And if you can do that here, you know, how can you lose? You're taking the brain of the compulsive eater out of the equation and are getting help from people who care about you. Anyway, I hope that helps. Thank you very, very much. And that does end of this time with John this morning, which has been so helpful, just very deep and rich with experience. And you can't get this kind of feedback, especially with the enhancement of the answering the questions without without really trudging. 
And John, I know from a personal experience that, that you are doing that very thing beautifully. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your experience Thanks, and for your recovery. Appreciate that. And I wanted mm-hmm. to tell people again the share ID numbers for the future listening of this particular podcast. And that is 19161, 19,161. And also I wanted to let you all know that we'll get John's contact information at the conclusion of this meeting. So we're not quite done, so hang in there for that. But for now, I'd like to close this meeting as we, like we always do by reading from our beloved big book, page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is so sick. The answer will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellow. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in this fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you. 